Let's open our Bibles to Mark 11. I get all my paraphernalia out here. It's a shame to get old and have to switch glasses. Okay, it's a shame to get older. How about that? Today we're going to be looking at why the palm in Palm Sunday? What's the palm about? Actually, we're just going to answer that one question. The real thing is going to be, what is Palm Sunday about? So uh, why the palm in Palm Sunday? We're going to be looking at the first 11 verses of Mark 11. So Mark 11, 1 through 11. While you're finding that in your Bibles, and if you don't have a Bible this morning, check, look to your left or right. Somebody probably has one right there. So share off their Bible, share off their device, whatever they're using, and we'll be able to read together. But while you're finding that, little history lesson. Around the general time of Jerusalem's destruction and its people's exile to Babylon because they'd broken the covenant, because they'd sinned, the prophet Ezekiel receives a vision from God. In this vision, he saw the glory of God depart. It departed in two stages. First, it departed from the temple and moved into Jerusalem. And then it moved from Jerusalem and moved to just up the Mount of Olives and then just disappeared in the vision, so to speak. The vision's over. Later on, that same temple, the first temple, Solomon's temple, it had been standing for around 400 years at that point, and it was destroyed by the Babylonians. Fast forward 150 years. This will this will make sense in a minute. Fast forward 150 years. The last Old Testament prophet, Malachi. Jerusalem and the temple have been rebuilt. Malachi's prophesying now to the people of God. The Jews are freely practicing Judaism again, and they're being allowed a limited amount of self-rule. Now, they're still a conquered people. They're still ruled by this time now the Persians who have conquered the Babylonians. There's no king on the throne from the line of David. Their city and their temple have been somewhat rebuilt completely, but it pales in comparison to the good old days. Jerusalem under David and Solomon. And the people themselves, though practicing Jews, they're religious. They're cynical. Now they're looking forward to the Lord's appearance because they thought when he appears in the temple, he will bring them good news. But Malachi informs that generation that one day, yes, your hopes will be realized, the Lord will visit his temple. And his presence will bring blessing to those Jews who have repented. But it will bring judgment to those Jews that do not repent. Let's move forward now 400 more years to our text today. That same temple that Malachi was talking about. And the adjacent areas had been beautifully and significantly enlarged by a guy named Herod the Great, a non-Jewish client king of Rome. It looks magnificent. The sacrifices are going. There's a high priest, but still, no prophet has arisen for 400 years. God has been silent. No Messiah has come. They're under Roman rule and a client king. And God has yet to visit his temple. Once the glorious manifested presence of God left, Israel never, ever experienced it again. 
until today. On that first Palm Sunday, as we call it, the Lord, his divinity hidden, will finally and formally, it's an official inspection visit of the temple. Jesus will be self-consciously obeying his Father's will and fulfilling his Father's promise. Now with that in our heads, we'll check out the text and see what happens. But before we do, let's pray. Lord, help us. Oh my, what an opportunity we have. Lord, help me to preach, Lord, effectively and clearly. Help me to preach adequately and accurately. And help all of us, Lord, starting with me. Give us ears to hear, a mind to understand, and a heart filled with inf- of affection, inflamed by your word. Help us today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Albert, uh, you didn't know, but uh, we said we're, I'm going to say the same thing you said in your announcement. Um, we prepare our hearts during the Advent season, don't we? We get ready for Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, but... What about Good Friday? And what about Easter? One could argue that these two days are much more important holidays, holy days, than Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. Oh, we keep Christ in Christmas. Let me invite you to do the same for Good Friday and Easter. Jesus is the reason for that season, too. So in order to help us do that, we're going to read Mark 1 through 11 today, and I'm going to comment on that text, but I'm going to add a little data. I'm going to sneak in and fill out some of the data from the other gospel accounts. If you're taking notes, uh, this is probably about the only notes you really have to take. There's going to be no slides, no nothing. I'm putting on my Mr. Rogers sweater, and I'm going to tell you a little story. So um, you might want to jot down some parallel verses to, to help us, things to read. So Mark 1 through 11, if you want to, read that this week. But also, now, here's why it's important. I'm going to give you tight verses because the the gospel writers compact and move around stuff. So we want to talk about just the things that happened as Jesus made his first official visit. Not the next day after he cursed the fig tree and cleaned out the temple. Just getting ready to make that visit. So the parallel verses in the other gospels of Mark 1 through 11, they're tight. It's Matthew 21. 1 through 11, Luke 19, 28 through 40, and John 12, 12 through 19. John 12, 12 through 19. Now you can just close your, your, uh, your notes and welcome to my neighborhood. Here we go. All his life, Jesus had regularly visited Jerusalem for the great feast. Think of years and years. Remember when Jesus was 12, he got left at the temple? All his life, he was a practicing, law-fulfilling Jew. So he had, he had visited and done all of this before. So we need to get this in our head that this is after years and years. Jesus joining with the other pilgrims from Galilee, the area where he lived. His relatives, his old friends, worshiping along the way. With singing, prayers, dancing, feasting, welcome to what this looked like. A crowd of pilgrims making their way south. And everybody else from Israel coming from all over. But Galilee, they're coming down. 
They're remembering and they're celebrating the promises of blessing and deliverance that God had already fulfilled for Israel. But they're not just celebrating the past, they're anticipating. And in this case, they are anxiously awaiting those promises that have yet to be fulfilled. Now what sets this one apart? The expectation for this particular pilgrimage? Oh, it's off the charts. Why? Because this time, Jesus, the prophet, the teacher, the healer from Galilee, he'd already been two times before after his ministry became public. But this time, all of that and the guy who last week was visiting in Bethany, and he raised Lazarus Lazarus, from the dead. And this time, the news had spread like wildfire. And Jerusalem was already a prep for this prophet, this teacher who could raise the dead. So we enter the story as Jesus is still at Bethany, or Bethany, during the weekend prior to Passover. So he's there the weekend prior to Passover. He has observed the Sabbath from Friday night through Sunday night, uh, Saturday night, and it's now Sunday morning. It's Sunday morning, the sun's up, and Jesus is about to walk the very short distance to Jerusalem. Jesus, his disciples, and a soon-to-be very large and very loud crowd. Now let's look down at Mark. You're going to be doing the bobblehead, so keep your finger there. We'll come, pop up, come down. Verse 1, I'm reading out of the ESV. As they all approached Jerusalem, they came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent out two of his disciples. He said to them, go to the village ahead of you. Just as you enter it, you will find a donkey's colt tied there. No one has ever ridden it. Untie it and bring it here. Someone may ask you, why are you doing this? If so, say, the Lord needs it, but he will send it back here soon. So they left. They found a colt out in the street. It was tied at a doorway. They untied it. Some people standing there asked, what are you doing? Why are you untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, so the people let them go. So they're on their way to Jerusalem. They came to Bethphage, one of the circle of villages that marked the, the day of a Sabbath day's journey. There was a line, it's about a mile, of villages around Jerusalem that on a Sabbath day journey you could go no further. So everybody hangs right there. They're near Bethany, one of the recognized lodging places of pilgrims. When Jerusalem was full, and oh, at Passover, it was always jam-packed. It had over-doubled in size of the amount of pilgrims in there. Probably, oh, I want to go into it, but a lot of stuff and a lot of people. So they had official designated places that you could stay and where hospitality was offered. Welcome, Jesus. It was Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. They're providing hospitality. So Jesus goes from the village down to the next one and what he's doing is he's coming down remember the glory of god he's right on the base almost it's about 300 feet up where ezekiel saw it of the mount of olives and jesus is going to begin his journey so he now sends two of his followers on a rather odd mission to get a young donkey to get a young donkey that no one has ever ridden on one that hasn't been broken in 
one that hasn't ever been trained. It's docile, but it's never had a rider. So in that sense, it's still wild. Why is he going to send him to get a donkey? So Jesus can ride it to Jerusalem. Now, we may not think about that, but for the disciples, that would have been odd. We get the, duh, don't ride an unbroken donkey. But you know, Jesus never, the Gospels record, never had he ridden a donkey anywhere in his travels. He either took a boat, unless he was walking on the water, he took a boat. <laughs> or he walked everywhere. So you've got to be thinking, these guys are going, what is he up to? This is new. Well, he's up to a couple things. Number one, he's demonstrating his divine foreknowledge. He knows the where, what, and when of getting the donkey, and it will happen just as he said. And he's also demonstrating that he is God's son, Israel's Messiah. Up to now, he's not wanted the acclaim of the crowd or to fully and openly proclaim his identity and his mission. No, no, no. But this time, now there's a change in the story. He will self-consciously choose to ride in Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives on a donkey and visit the temple. Now, it's interesting. Matthew mentions two animals. Well, well, sure. The disciples would naturally know to take the young donkey's mother along with it. But in the Old Testament, an old, a, a unbroken beast of burden was always used for sacred purposes. If a, if a beast of burden had been used for something else, it wasn't eligible for any sacred, holy task. And by the way, no one in that culture ever, ever rode the king's beast, donkey or horse. Nobody sits on that animal but the king. You see, Jesus will arrive in Jerusalem the exact same way that King Solomon did when Solomon was declared king. The, the donkey was considered a noble animal in that culture. It was a sign of peace. Kings, remember Jesus coming back the second time? He rides on a horse. Kings at war ride in on a horse. Kings at peace ride in on a donkey. And the Messiah would certainly fulfill all the Old Testament-inspired Jewish hope of a king, a king from the tribe of Judah, check, entering Jerusalem on a donkey, check, their humble, check, servant, check, shepherd, check, king, check. But surely the disciples will be challenged when they take somebody else's animals. Well, of course. And even the answer proclaims Jesus' divine authority. The Lord has need. Oh, but by the way, unlike the plundering kings of this world who had the prerogative to take a donkey, Jesus will give it back to the owner real soon. So on the surface, a very odd errand, but one the disciples will obey immediately. Execute effortlessly and understand only after he has ascended. Look at verse 7. They brought the colt to Jesus. They threw their coats over it. Then he sat on it. Many people spread their coats on the road. Others spread branches they had cut in the fields. What happens there? 
The disciples make a saddle for their master with their own outer garments. The crowds begin to spontaneously take off their outer garments. Think if everybody's wearing a coat and here comes Jesus and you rip off your coat, put your best coat, put it on. And then the other people, they see that and Jesus mounts and they just start taking off their, clo- their, their, their coats. Jesus rides to Jerusalem on a mile of a royal carpet made from the best clothes of his people. Why the palm in Palm Sunday? Well, those were spread on the road too. Sorry, they weren't being waved. They were spread on the road too. Mark's word could, for, for, for that palm, where we have palm, Mark's word could include a variety of items cut from the fields, corn stalks, straw, leafy limbs, branches from other trees, but all the other gospels say palms. Why? Because palms was the Jewish symbol of victory, the symbol of nationalism. It was used, the palm was used for decorating the synagogue. It was impressed as a symbol on the Jewish minted coins of that era this thing is just slap full of symbolic meaning and jesus is fully aware verse 9 those in front and those in back shouted hosanna blessed is the one who comes in the name of the lord blessed is the coming kingdom of our father david hosanna in the highest oh it's a large and loud crowd in front of and behind Jesus, and they're shouting several things. The first two are from Psalm 118. Oh, what a psalm. It was a psalm probably written to commemorate what we know today as Hanukkah. When a Jewish rebel commander led his troops to victory and reclaimed and repurified the temple. And then his brother went on to lead other rebel soldiers in the complete conquest of jerusalem there singing that thanksgiving psalm hosanna that's the greek version of a hebrew word which means save or help please a prayer for god to save his people and for god to save his people soon right now and think of the think of the context especially today why messiah jesus is here. Oh God, this is it. Intervene. Blessed is the one who comes did not normally refer to the Messiah. They sang this song all the time when they were going to Jerusalem. It was what they said to other pilgrims as they actually entered the temple. The one who comes was also another way in the vernacular to say the Messiah, the one who comes. And today, openly, loudly in front and behind by a ginormous crowd it's being applied to jesus blessed is the coming kingdom of our father david that wasn't from any soul but it spoke to something their current and specific hope of that time see jesus must be god's messiah he's the earthly king from the line of david and jesus is going to deliver them from those stinking Romans. Save now. Here's the man. Not the God-man in their minds. The man. And save us from these stinking Romans. Oh, the crowd is doing a very dangerous thing. They're openly proclaiming Jesus as their king. Jesus, not Caesar. Remember what's above his head? Jesus, 
the king of the Jews. And some of the Pharisees that are watching, they tell Jesus to rebuke the crowd. But the whole city is affected, and the word keeps spreading. Jesus tells them, hey guys, if the crowd stops shouting, the stones will shout in their place. Verse 11, look down. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. Stop. Jesus enters Jerusalem, but that's not his final destination. He heads to the temple, not to the palace of Herod or to the praetorium or the residence of the governor of the Roman governor. No, God is coming to his temple. Now look down. He looked around at everything, but it was already late. So he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The prophet Malachi, Malachi 3.2 says, But who can endure the day of his coming? Who will be able to stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire. So if you don't repent, you burn. And like fuller's soap, if you do repent, you still get put on a rock and beaten with sticks. There's a cost. Jesus inspects the temple. Tomorrow, the next day, on Monday, he's going to return to that same temple after the inspection. And it will, be, it will not be bringing good news, but news of judgment. That's why he weeps over Jerusalem as he's coming in. The fickle crowd vanished. They were filled with joy, but they completely missed his purpose. They missed the point. They fade away, and Jesus and his disciples head back to Bethany alone. So, what are we to do with all of this? Well, this is to whet your appetite prepare for this week. This is to point to what was going on in that text. But this is to cause us to remember. Remember that around 586 BC, so now we're roughly 600 years before the coming, before this event, the temple. Remember The glory of God left the temple, then Jerusalem, and it went to the Mount of Olives. On the first Palm Sunday, Jesus, who Hebrew says is the brightness of God's glory. Second Corinthians says, where we see the glory of God reflected in the face of Christ. The glory of God came down from the Mount of Olives, came into Jerusalem through the same gate, by the way, and entered the temple again. Now, when he came, he found it wanting. And in less than 40 years, that magnificent temple, and it was, it was said that when you first saw the temple, when you came over and you saw it, it was these gigantic white polished marble stones. And there was so much gold everywhere. The temple portion itself was like 15 stories tall. And it had this this huge wall. And when, when you first saw it, when the sun was shining, it almost blinded your eyes, like snow blind. 
that magnificent temple, now larger because of all the other construction than Solomon's. In about 40 years, a little less, it'll be violently destroyed by the Romans. Temple 1, destroyed by the Babylonians. Temple 2, destroyed by the Romans. But remember, a third and final temple has appeared. His name is Jesus. He's the dwelling place, the meeting place of God and humanity. He's here. And he's never going away. And he'll never be destroyed. And he'll never leave you or forsake you. Oh, they didn't know it yet. They didn't know that the temple, even though he said, destroy this temple, three days I'll ride, I'll build it, I'll bring it back again. But see, they didn't know it. You know why? It's interesting. Jesus is not revealed in the fickleness and the worldly ambition of crowds. Jesus is only revealed in the cross. It's not the crowds. It's the cross. Where was he glorified? On the cross. And remember, last but not least, God came to save. And for those who repent, even today, it's still good news. See, on Friday, we'll gather to remember. We'll reflect, we'll proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, we'll worship Christ in song, we'll receive his word in preaching, and we'll commune with him in the Lord's Supper. That's what we do on Friday. It's, it's the, you know where we get the word, um, you ever heard the crux of the matter? Okay, most of you speak Spanish. Crux? It's the, yeah, cruz, it's the central place. The cross is central. Oh, Christmas, I love it. Good Friday, more important, hands down. Easter, I love it. They go together. It's not one over the other. They go together. Advent was looking forward to the cross. He came to save. One day he'll come back to judge. And there'll be no second chance. So I invite you, if you haven't repented and put your trust, your faith, you haven't turned from your ways and put your faith and your trust in what Jesus did on Calvary's tree, or if you don't know what that even means, ask somebody besides you. They do. But if you haven't, I pray you will today. And today, what we're going to do after this, what, a, what better way to celebrate Palm Sunday than baptisms. You know, back in the day, they didn't have altar calls. There's nothing wrong with altar calls. Okay? Those of you from a Baptist persuasion, exhale. There's nothing wrong. But they didn't have altar calls. You know what the altar call was? When he got baptized. That's when he made your public profession. I am saying there's an event that's already occurred in my heart, union with him. I've received him. And now I'm going to proclaim, not only am I his, but Jesus says, you're mine. Because he seals you. He puts that, that tattoo on you. 
and says, you belong to me. And it's a sign. It's a sign that points to something real. The Cracker Barrel, you've seen that sign. If you've never been, you go, big deal. No, this is why the people participating in baptism is not just the people going under the water. You see the sign, you don't, want to meet, you don't know what's inside, you don't know the reality that it represents, big deal. Oh, you go to Cracker Barrel once, you'll never see the sign again the same way. <laughs> Listen, this is not sentimental. Although it's okay to say, oh, I'm that cute. It's not a ritual. Someone is going into the water. They have already died to themselves, repented. They're passing safely through the waters of judgment. And what do you do with a dead person? You bury them. We're pulling them back up to newness of new life. And there's a line of demarcation, just like at the Red Sea, when the Israelites were saved from the slavery. We're saved from the slavery of sin, and we walk now to new life. But we're still waiting until that day. Our promised land is in heaven. So we go down. We're raised up. And we walk in newness of life with a line of demarcation. I'm yours. And Jesus is going, and you're mine. And here's a symbol. And here's a seal. And we get to watch this visible proclamation of the gospel. So with that, Corey, come on up. And everybody who's getting baptized, come on down.